Hello everyone and welcome to The Other Web. Our guest today is Craig Van Slyke, a business professor, author, and wannabe rancher who lives in the middle of the Louisiana woods with his long-suffering wife, mother-in-law, three dogs, three cats, two horses, and two goats. We reached out to Craig to discuss his views on how technology affects our lives and how we can apply philosophy to make our everyday life better. Craig, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. All right. So I saw a lot of interesting things in your bio, but the one that really caught my eye is the idea that you can apply philosophy to your daily life. Can you elaborate on that a bit? Sure. So I'm kind of a closet philosopher. I've never studied it formally outside of one logic class as an undergrad. But I became really interested in philosophy when I was at Northern Arizona University as a business school dean. I attended, oh, I can't remember what it was called, some kind of a salon that the university was sponsoring where we they talked about stoicism and grieving, which are two things that I hadn't really put together before because most of us, if you hear stoic, grieving would be like the last thing you would think a stoic would do. But that turned out to not actually be the case. And so that started me down this road of being really interested in in different kinds of philosophy, typically kind of the ancient Greek and Roman, but also some Eastern philosophies. And just my take is you should find where wisdom wherever you can. And so if something resonates, then, you know, I try to use it. And so the most influential idea is the Stoic idea of control. And that really permeates how I try to approach everyday life. Um, there are things you can, some things you are under your control and some things aren't. And things that aren't under my control, I try really hard to just let them go without a lot of worrying about it. You know, you can't, if you can't control it, what's the point in worrying about it? So as you can see, there's an Epictetus quote right behind me. So you are so, preaching yeah. to the choir here. Yeah. But for the benefit of our users, can you elaborate a bit on that? How do we determine whether something is under our control or not? And what do we do in each of these spheres? So it boils down to your opinions are under your control. And pretty much nothing else is fully under your control. So everything else, the, the Stoics call them externals. They're things that are outside of you and your own thoughts. And you can't really fully control those. Now, some more modern Stoics like William Irvine, he believes that there's really kind of an in-between too. He calls it the trichotomy of control instead of the dichotomy of control. And his basic idea is you've got the, you know, the things that are under your control, your thoughts, your internals, things that are, that are completely outside of your control. And then in between, there are things where you might be able to exert some control. So, for example, your personal finances. You know, you can't really determine everything about your personal financial situation, but you can avoid spending money unnecessarily. You can build your skill set so maybe you can get higher compensation. You know, there, you can invest. You know, there are all kinds of things you can do. But if there's a giant recession, you know, your 401k is going to go down. And it doesn't really matter what you've done. You may affect the degree to which it goes down, but you can't control the broader economy. And so that's the basic idea behind stoicism is that you've got this control over some things, no control over others. 
And it really doesn't make any sense to get upset about things that are outside of your control. Yeah, so I have to say, when I was reading the Stoics recently, then my thought about it as an engineer immediately was that in most of these processes that involve some level of chance, some level of externality, the expected value is under my control and the variance isn't. <laughs> right, So right. I can play the hand correctly, to use a poker analogy, but the other guy might still suck out on me. Right. right. But the, how I play the hand is under my control. It's not just my thought and opinion, right? There is some level of action that I can control as well. Right. And that's Irvine's point where you've got that middle ground. And I don't think the classic Stoics would argue with that. You know, if you look at, you know, Seneca was very involved in Roman politics and business, you know, so they believe in taking action. They believe in being part of society. Marcus Aurelius, you know, was the last good emperor of Rome. And so it's not this, you should just sit around like, was it Diogenes, you know, that just kind of said, the heck with everything. That's the guy who sat in the bathtub all day? Yeah, I think that's it. I, I could be wrong. Like I said, I am not a classically trained philosopher, but I think it was Diogenes. You know, and so the Stoics weren't in that camp at all. You know, they were part of public life and they were active in various areas. And so I totally agree with you, but I would give a little word of caution here. So I listened to a few of your episodes and, and I have engineering background as well. So I teach information systems. I've studied engineering. I was an engineering major for three years until I realized I didn't like it. And so I think we have to be careful about how we set our goals. You know, so we talk about smart goals and that kind of thing, and they're all, that's all fine. But your goal should be under your control. So, for example, we both have podcasts. I'd like to have more downloads. And so my podcast is fairly small. It's, let's say I have a goal of 200 downloads an episode, which is way more than I get. That is not entirely under my control. Now, if my goal is to engage with certain communities on LinkedIn or to give you know, X number of Twitter posts per day, those things are under my control. And so that's how we should do things like setting goals. You know, they can still be smart, all that sort of thing, but they can't be external. They need to be internal. They need to be what I call behavioral goals rather than outcome goals. So this raises an interesting problem for companies because in my case, the podcast is not the goal. The goal is... We have a company called The Other Web, right? The podcast is just a way to generate some interest, to produce some interesting content for readers of The Other Web and for other people who might find us elsewhere. In the company realm, it seems like it's very hard to set internal goals because the rest of the world judges you by your external performance. So if I'm going to investors and I'm trying to raise funds, I can't tell them that our engineering process is pristine and we have these beautiful viral loops that we've engineered and we are doing our best. I'm not going to get any money. I need right. to tell them six months ago I had 500 users and today I have 600,000 users. Therefore, I deserve to get an investment, right? So how do I bridge that gap between internally setting goals that are under my control, but externally still showing results the way that the rest of the world evaluates things. So I, I separate it out into targets and goals. And that's just kind of my way of thinking about it. So the 500,000 users, that's a target. 
right? And and that really is not completely under your control, right? A competitor can come into the marketplace and undercut you. You know, Apple can launch an app that competes with you. You know, there are a lot, not that they do that, but there's there are a lot of things that can happen. But what you need to think about or what business owners need to think about are what are those behavioral internal goals that are going to best give you the best chances of achieving that external target. And and you're a systems guy. I mean, even what you were describing is we're, we're really behavioral things that should get you to where you, you want to be more externally. So I, I think you have to balance those two things. There's a reality that you do have to have these external targets. I mean, I'm a college professor and I have publishing targets. You know, I want to try to publish X number of papers per year, that sort of thing. And that is not under my control to a great extent. I need to have those targets. I need to put them in my annual report. But what gets me there is, okay, I'm going to spend two hours per day working on this project. You know, and that's what gets me towards that target. I think what you said is absolutely right, but the two ideas are not incompatible. You know, you have your kind of system internal goals, but then you also have those external targets. Right. And, and that's true in personal life as well. Yeah, I'm trying to figure out if there's a systemic way to connect the two and say, if I get all these processes right, then my expected value is 600,000 users plus minus 300,000. And the plus or minus is not under my control. But the thing that I'm aiming at maybe is. I don't know if we can always quantify it like that, though. No, I mean, you may not be always be able to quantify it that precisely. But the key word there is expected. And so you have an expected value and there are probabilities and, you know, error bands around that. And so you do what gives you the highest probabilities with the narrowest error bands is one way to think about it. But a Stoic would say, yeah, it's okay to have that target, but you need to focus on the things you can control. You know, not all those things that are beyond your control. Now, you need to have those things on your radar. You know, you're a business person. You need to know what your competition is doing. You need to know where there might be synergies, partnerships you might pursue, those sorts of things. So it's not that you ignore those externals. You're aware of them, but at the end of the day, you can't control those. You may need to pivot because of them, but what Stoicism would say is, there's no use in getting really upset because a new competitor comes out. You know, you just have to deal with it. Like you said it earlier, I, I love expressing it the way you expressed it. You can't control the cards you're dealt. You can only control how you play them. That's it. And that, to me, is the key idea. Right. So if we try to go beyond the dichotomy of control, I know that Stoicism has a lot of interesting ideas. Some of them flow out of that and are sort of downstream. I've tried to articulate that to people myself, and obviously I'm no Epictetus, no Masonius Rufus, so I'm not as good at articulating those ideas. It seems like I get often a lot of pushback that great thing that you're describing there, no bad thing happened, don't feel bad about it, but we're human, we cannot do that. And so what is your response to the, we're just human, so we're supposed to grieve, we're supposed to feel upset when the world upsets us kind of thing? Is there a way around it or a good counter-argument? Well, I think that that's an important acknowledgement. 
Let me give you an example. So one of the hardest things to deal with is a loss of a loved one. And in one of, I think it was one of Seneca's letters to a, a widow of one of his friends, he said, weep, but do not wail. And so, sure, you need to allow yourself to experience natural emotions, but you can't let them overtake you. And the other thing I would say is that the Stoics had the concept of the sage, kind of the perfect Stoic that applies all the principles. Well, that doesn't exist. Seneca wasn't, you know, Epictetus wasn't, wasn't you know, go right down the list. And they weren't. <clears throat> they simply were not sages. But you can get better. And you can use the principles and the practices to try to put some guardrails, you know, keeping yourself from getting too upset about things that are external to you. So this actually leads me to a completely different topic where this accidentally came up in some sense, which is we use artificial intelligence and in a lot of our projects. And there's a lot of discussion right now about artificial intelligence and about the ethics of artificial intelligence. And every time I read what researchers consider to be the ethical underpinnings of a future AI system, I always have sort of the normal Greek objection of it's great that you think that something that has a good outcome is good. How can you predict the outcome? <laughs> yeah. All right. So the objection to utilitarian ethics, to consequentialist, and, and to deontic, which just gets outdated quickly. So I've been thinking, can you take the concept of the sage and use that as the ethical guidepost for future artificial intelligence? Basically, get your future AI systems to ask, what would Cato do? Well, I think what you're describing is pretty close to virtue ethics. So what would a virtuous person do? Right. And I think in dynamic environments like AI, that's the best you can do. Matter of fact, just before we got on this call, I was working on a, a journal article about the use of AI tools in education. And one of the things that, that we're trying to, to put into that article is you can't have static guidelines. You can't say, do this, don't do that. You can say it temporarily, but it's an evolving area. I, I don't know what the AI tools will be able to do in six weeks, much less six months or six years. The evolution is just crazy. I'm enamored with ChatGTP, so you know I've been checking every day to see if I got access to the API and that sort of thing yet. But uh, I think you're right. The, if we think of what would a good and just use of this AI tool look like, then that's what should guide our ethical thinking. But it's a complex area because, you know, AI tools are not static. I can give you rules around plagiarism. You know, what is plagiarism? What isn't plagiarism? But I don't know what AI is going to do tomorrow. So I don't know how we have static rules. But I, I like your approach, which sounded like virtue ethics to me. That's where I was going with it. That I think that is probably the only type of ethics that can work in this case. But it seems like I'm the only one in the industry who thinks that. Right? I see people trying to solve these complicated philosophical trolley problems. Like, okay, what happens if you choose this or what happens if you choose that? And I keep wanting to shout, okay, but you don't see how many people are in this branch. 
you don't know whether or not it will actually go on the rails or deviate afterwards. All of that is unknowns. And by the way, you have adrenaline going through your head and you can't think straight. <laughs> right? This is not how you make decisions. <laughs> so trying to code that into a machine is just going to be disaster. But that's just my approach to things, I guess. But I think there's a really important hidden point there. And that's that these are ethical dilemmas. And what makes an ethical dilemma is that there's not a clear right choice. There's not a clear superior choice. And so, you know, whether you should, you know, run over the 25 80-year-old grandmas or the five little babies, you know, they're both bad choices. And so you just have to think through, you know, what is your value system? That's another thing that we're going to need to have conversations about at some point as a society is what set of values are being applied to these sorts of decisions. You know, because what makes something good or bad is what values you apply to it. And without the discussion of values, you really can't establish something as being either good or bad. There's some things we pretty much universally agree on are good or bad. But anything outside a pretty small set of things you go across cultures, you go across societies, you're going to get different answers on what's good and bad because there are different values at play. So that actually raises a concern I have that is outside the engineering realm. That is, I'm not sure that even the small subset exists anymore. If we don't have any common metaphysical beliefs, then how can we possibly actually agree on even a small subset of values that are absolutely true? seems like everything is becoming more and more relativistic in some sense. And I think, I don't know, I'd have to think pretty hard about this, but I think I'm at least somewhat on the side of moral relativism in this way, is you, you can't understand somebody's moral choices or assess them as being moral or not moral until you understand those values. And then you have to decide whether or not those values align with the values you hold. So it's really a complicated thing, which is why, you know, so much of the discussion you see online is so overly simplistic, you know, this side is evil, that side is evil, you know, it's just not that easy. And, and it's not, as much as I believe in engineering approaches, it's not an engineering problem. You know, it's not, uh, it's not that reductionist. And so it's really hard. In our case, the engineering problem is trying to filter out the bad level, bad quality arguments, right? So that at least an independent reader who wasn't a part of that argument can read the best version of each side. But that is a question that I keep having, which is if there is no agreement on the basic values, then generally speaking, people just talk over each other's heads, right? Right. One says you're trying to take away my right to choose, and the other one says, but you're killing babies, right? Clearly, there's a values level mismatch there. They're not actually arguing the same point, right? They're assuming right. something, and then they're arguing something given an assumption, but the assumptions are different. But how can we bring those assumptions to the surface so that people actually discuss those? Well, so, so there are a couple of interesting things in your comment. One is that idea of assumptions. And so... We all have assumptions. You cannot operate without using assumptions. Matter of fact, I did an episode on that. And if you don't mind, my, I'll plug my podcast. It's Live Well and Flourish at livewellandflourish.com. 
I did an episode about assumptions because I, one of the things I teach my doctoral students is keep peeling back to find hidden assumptions. And so we often aren't aware of the assumptions that we hold. And so finding ways to surface those hidden assumptions is important. The other thing comes out of conflict management theories where there, there are different kinds of conflict. So you have task-based conflict, which is usually good as long as it doesn't get out of hand. You've been in engineering meetings where you butt heads with somebody, but you end up with a, a solution that neither one of you had to begin with, but it's better than the ones that you had. And so that's good. There's kind of emotion or affective conflict, which is typically bad. You just don't like each other. The example I use is I, I used to live in St. Louis, and the Cardinals fans and the Cub fans have this rivalry. So, you know, if if I'm if we have conflict because you're a Cubs fan and I'm a Cardinals fan, well, that doesn't get us anywhere in terms of our output. But the most important type of agreement, they call it diversity, which is a lack of agreement, is around values. And so if you don't agree on what the ultimate goal of something is, you never get anywhere. And so that's always bad. It's always bad. And so the conversations we really ought to be having would be to come to some agreement on what the goal is. So I, I was talking with somebody just yesterday about uh, diversity. And if you talk to somebody who's pretty conservative and you talk to somebody that's pretty liberal, they're going to have very different views around diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I've got friends that run the whole gamut. But if you ask them, should everybody have a fair chance at success? They're all going to say, yeah. I mean, I, I can't think of any, anybody that's my friend that would say, no, some people should ha you know, shouldn't have any chances at success. And I think if you also ask, should their success be driven at least in part by their own efforts? most people would also say yes. And so if you start with that, let's see what we can agree on. Then it becomes kind of an engineering problem. What's the best way to get there? Now, there's a lot of room for disagreement and conflict there as well. But if you can't agree on what the end goal is, then you really are just banging your head against a wall. And so that's where I think you can take some of these value things and get them to where they can be engineered. I'm immediately getting another political example to mind, which is voting itself, right? We tend to resolve our political conflicts, if we can call it that, using the booth, right? But I don't think Americans agree on the purpose of voting, right? It seems to me like at least the initial purpose was good governance, right? A check on corruption. But right now we're talking about the right to vote. And if the voting is the purpose then good governance is obviously not a factor in how we set up our voting system, right? So are conflicts like that resolvable? Can you peel back the onion on something like that? Well, I think so. And I, I am not a political scientist or in any way an expert on politics. So mm -hmm. I want to qualify what I'm about to say. But I think applying that same kind of value conflict framing around voting I think we, most of us would agree that people who do have the right should have unfettered access to being able to vote and that that access should be equal. You know, one group shouldn't have easier access to voting than another group. 
But I think we could also agree that most people would agree that those who don't have the right to vote shouldn't. They should be blocked from voting. Now, what's the best way to do that is when it starts to become an engineering problem and, you know, arguments for IDs and arguments against IDs. But if we start from that common ground, then we have some hope of getting somewhere. I would counter, though, that that common ground just resolved the two small extremes on each side, right? But you have this entire space in the middle where, just to use an example, there is no get-out-the-vote operation allowed legally in most democracies in the world. We have, right? That's a big part of our campaigns in the U.S. In Israel, there's no political advertising outside of specific slots allocated to each party that are equal between the parties because then a party that has more money does not actually get to have more advertising on TV, right? But in the U.S., obviously, whoever raises more money has more ads on TV and therefore gets to I'm going to use probably a very loaded term, but gets to buy votes. That's how I tend to look at it, having grown up in Israel. Right? And get out the vote operations seem like the same to me. That's a way for somebody who has more money to buy themselves more votes using that money. Uh, we're not having that discussion, I think, because if we start having it, we will find out that we haven't actually thought through what is the purpose of this entire thing. Yeah, we're kind of out of my depth when it gets to that. But I will say that I do think there could be agreement reached on it. You know, it could be hard to get there and it may not be universal agreement, but that's part of living in a civil society is you don't have to agree on every little thing. But my, I guess my larger point is you start with that agreement. I will make a little side comment. It's... People in power want to keep power. People that are out of power want to get the power. And I think that lens explains a lot of what goes on in politics. And we certainly have our share of problems and how things run in the U.S. But, you know, I would also argue that there's an overemphasis on the the things that we don't do well and forgetting all the things that we do really well. But that that's a natural human tendency. And it's it's not from an engineering standpoint that's not necessarily bad. You know, you improve by continuing to do the things you do well while chipping away at the things that you don't do well if you want incremental type improvements. And to mirror your comment, I just used Israel as a counterexample, but as the last five years show, the Israeli political system is completely dysfunctional, right? So it's not like that as an example we should emulate. It's just a way to show that some of the things that are almost unquestionable in the American system actually work differently elsewhere in other democratic societies. So I would say it's if we're trying to pursue values as opposed to just perpetuating systems, then we could question things like that. Maybe we'll end up with the same answer. But yeah. yeah. I personally believe that we should question things all the time. I mean, I I try to do that personally. You know, I've got these long-term targets and and these things that I want to do and the the kind of person that I want to be. And so where am I measuring up and where am I not measuring up? And so, you know, it's a a constant process. And I think society is like that as well. The other thing, just as a side comment, again, not being an expert, a lot of things that are idiosyncratic about the American systems can be traced back to our individualism you know, the whole free trying to be free from tyranny that goes back to our origins as a country. 
you know, so that's why I think you, maybe people are a little more reluctant to put some of those limitations in because we see that they may be inhibiting personal liberty. But again, I'm not an expert and I am certainly not uh, putting forth the beliefs of my employer at any point. <laughs> so, All right. So having spent enough time on the political realm, let's dial it back to the personal ethical realm or... Good, that's just, safer ground, yeah. yeah it, well, I'm not sure, but we'll try to tread carefully in all grounds. I guess, let's say that we've already established that we want to focus more of our efforts and our actions and our emotions potentially on the sphere of things that we could control. What should we do there to lead a happy, fruitful life? What are the things that we control and should spend more effort on? Well, I want to take maybe a step back from that. Maybe. I don't know. I'm a huge believer in the idea of understanding your purpose. My purpose is to help people lead successful, meaningful lives, however they find it success, however they find meaning. And I kind of evolved that purpose while I was a dean of a business school. And that purpose gives you the foundation for everything else. So then you can start to understand what is going to help you serve that purpose and what is going to maybe move you away from serving that purpose. And where it gets into control is that how you pursue that purpose, exactly what you do, that is not entirely within your control. You know, when, when I was dean, I could pursue that in certain ways. As a faculty member, I can pursue that in other ways. If I was homeless, there'd still be ways. Oh, I'm not going to get this quote right, but there, one of the Stoics has a quote that says, that on all paths, there are many simple paths to freedom. Or on all sides, there are many simple paths to freedom. But the idea is, if you understand your purpose, then there's always going to be a way for you to pursue that purpose. And so that, to me, is the key, is if you understand what your purpose in life is, then when something becomes out of your control then you can switch your focus to, some, to something that is under your control. And I would extend that to the idea of character. You know, the kind of person you want to be. You can always be kind. You can always be honest. You can always, you know, be friendly. Those things are in your control because they're your acts. They're things that you are in charge of whether or not you do. And so I think that the key from a personal standpoint is to consider those two things. What's my purpose in life and what kind of person do I want to be? And then everything else is directed at those two things. And those are under your control. I mean, we could go to the extreme where if somebody's in a coma, you know, that kind of thing. But but for the vast majority of people, those two things are always under your control. Always. Question that I immediately get in my mind is okay, you use the example of the homeless person, and let's say that person happens to have the same purpose as you, like helping people lead more meaningful lives, if I heard it correctly. Should he focus on doing that as a homeless person, or should his initial focus be to stop being homeless? Because then any further action in the future is going to have more impact. Well, maybe. Maybe. And I'm going to go maybe a little bit far here, but even a homeless person can help other people, right? And maybe even a homeless person is better equipped to help other homeless people 
than somebody who is living in a nice house. I don't know. But I think the larger point is that that is under that person's control. They get to make a decision. Am I going to focus on learning how to help people live well on the street? Or am I going to, you know, go to some social service agency and try to get some skills so I can get a job, so I can get myself out of this particular homeless situation? But that choice is up to that person. And of course, within some boundaries, right? You know, it may depend on where they live and a lot of other factors. But the key here is that they get to make that choice. And if they don't, you know, if they, this is another important thing about well-being. If one choice doesn't work out, you can make a different choice. You know, you're not, I made this choice and I can never make another choice. I never get to make another decision. So I think that's important to keep in mind too. I'm just thinking about the strategic aspect of this and the tactical. So the strategic question when you say the most important thing is to have a purpose, okay, how do I discover my purpose? That's the strategic question. And then the tactical one is, okay, once I have discovered what the purpose is, how do I pursue that exactly? Because it seemed like often there are trade-offs and it's not clear which way is better. I'll give you another tactical example that I see a lot among entrepreneurs. A lot of my friends are entrepreneurs, right? One of the most common things I hear is, once I make a lot of money, I'm going to devote myself to philanthropy and charity and help a lot of people. And so the immediate objection is, why aren't you doing that today? How much have you given to charity last year? Their answer is typically, well, my charity will have a lot more impact once I've made a lot of money. Therefore, it doesn't make sense to spend my money on charity this year. It makes more sense to reinvest it, make more money, then I'll have more impact. Which way is better? Seems like I don't have a clear answer between those two. No, well, it's not a clear answer because you've got probabilities involved and unknowns. I mean, you could reduce that to an equation if you knew what they were ultimately going to make when they made all their money. You know, but you, you know, you're an entrepreneur. You know, it could be zero. It could be a lot. You know, who knows? But what I would argue is that that's a little bit of a false choice. So that's reducing helping others to giving money. You know, there's nothing from stopping somebody who's trying to build their business from going down and reading to kids at the elementary school for an hour a week. Or for, you know, starting up a, a little online group to try to help people that are dealing with some kind of a problem or, or any of an innumerable number of other activities they could do. So I think sometimes we box ourselves in because it's easier that way. If you don't have a choice, it's easy, right? You know, you, you don't have a choice. You, you just kind of go with whatever way the wind is blowing you. But that's no way to go through life. There's another quote that I'm not going to get right. But, you know, a ship without a rudder goes where it goes. And to me, that's not the way to live a, an excellent life. You know, you have to have a destination. If you don't know what your destination is, you may as well not have a rudder. You know, just let life blow you around. And I know I'm I'm kind of mixing metaphors there a little bit, I think, but uh, I think you get the idea. I can quote Groucho Marx in return. If you don't know where you're going, you might not get there. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, you will. Yeah, you'll get there. Yeah. <laughs> so. <laughs> All right. That raises us back to the strategic level. How does one 
discover their purpose? I'm sure that's a question that especially is interesting to young people, but perhaps not just young people. Most people get to their 40s and if you ask them, what is your greater purpose in life? They will basically tell you what they've done last week. (laughs) They haven't thought farther than that. Yeah, and most people don't think about that. So there are a number of things that you can do to try to figure out what your purpose is. But but it's a lot of work and it's never really 100% set in stone. You know, it's an evolution. One of the activities, I used to teach a class uh, with a philosopher, actually a a freshman first year seminar on self-leadership. And we'd, we'd start off by talking about purpose. And we gave them a couple of activities to do. One is to think about if you never had to worry about money again, never had to worry about it. You know, you win the lottery, you find out that you had a great, great uncle seven times removed that left you a billion dollars. How would you spend your time? You know, and we're hoping that it wouldn't be, you know, hookers and cocaine and, you know, (laughs) get a little bit deeper than that. But uh, how would you spend your time? What would you be doing? And then you switch into why would you be doing that? So I I would really encourage people to go look up Simon Sinek's, oh, what does he call it? The golden circle, the why, start with why. Yeah, it was really influential on how I think about a lot of things. And so you might start with, what would you do? But you need to push that into, why would you be doing that? Well, I'd start a podcast. Well, why would you start a podcast? Well, I think it would be fun. Well, a lot of things would be fun. Why a podcast? Well, you know, I really have some ideas on how I can help people. So helping people is important to you? Yeah. Why is that important to you? And it's almost a five whys kind of a thing. Not exactly, but it's along those same lines. So that's one activity. Another is imagine that you're at your own funeral. What do you want people saying about you? I like that activity because it really reveals a little bit about your purpose, but also about your character. Who is it that you want to be? And so, you know, when when they're talking about how you spent your life and the impact you had on the world, what do you want them to say? Well, you know, I was a great friend to people that didn't have a lot of friends. All right, then maybe your purpose is to support people that are isolated. You know, well, you know, I really wanted to be known that that I helped people find meaning in their life. Okay, now you're starting to narrow in on your why. And it's an evolution. You know, it, it you do this over and over and over again, and you start to narrow down a little bit. And like I said earlier, it's always subject to change. But when you get it, it starts to be fairly static. You know, maybe a little noise here and there, but not these big swings. Like I started out thinking I was put on this earth to help people be successful. But as I started thinking about it more and more, it's like, okay, success is fine, but meaning is also important. And so that's when I added meaning to my purpose. So I I think those are some activities that can help people start to think about it. So perhaps by accident and perhaps by serendipity, 
you described the process that got me to working on what I'm working on now. Oh, nice. <laughs> nice. Because initially I was in a completely different field. I was building cameras and computer vision systems, right? And I was pretty unhappy because I didn't like the stuff I was building. I didn't think it was good for the world. And so one day I was having this conversation with my wife where she asked, well, what do you want to do? What would you do if you had a lot of money? And I described this idea of the other web to her, but I said, but it's too big. I can't do that without having a large exit first, right? That's an idea only a rich person can pursue. She said, well, what if you can afford to? <laughs> right, and that's how I ended up where I am. And yeah, even this idea of what do you want people to say in your funeral? I used to ask myself this question, what do I want my epitaph to say? Right, And I decided at some point a year and a half ago that I wanted to say, this man fixed the world's information. <laughs> nice. Right? And that's how we ended up where we are. But I guess one question that I have is once you have that, you still can't devote 100% of everything you do to it, no. right? Like maybe you want to fix the world's information, but you also want to have a wife and kids and grandkids eventually and do these kind of normal things. You also want to keep your body in shape Perhaps not just because it helps you with your purpose, but just because it makes for a more pleasurable existence if you're able to do whatever it is that you decide to do and you don't have physical limitations. So how do you balance these things? The purpose, the family, the health, personal development. What is the right balance here? Well, let me turn to Aristotle's ethics here a little bit and the idea of the golden mean, which is the mean is, I, I don't like that word because it's not really a midpoint, but it, it's somewhere between the excess or the, the vice of excess and the vice of deficiency. And so if you pay attention to nothing but your purpose, I think we could argue that might be the vice of excess. And if you never pay any attention to your purpose, that's the vice of deficiency. And everybody has to decide where that mean is somewhere in between those two. And so I think giving that some thought, you know, for your personal circumstances, like I don't have kids. So maybe my correct point is a little bit further towards purpose and maybe somebody who's trying to raise kids, you know, it's a little bit, you know, further away from that. And I would also say that life is not unidimensional. You know, if you look at most philosophies, we live in the world. You know, the idea of the hermit going out and living off by themselves in the woods, that's not what most philosophies would argue for. And so you need to have some sort of a rounded life. And I'm not sure I'm getting at exactly what you were asking about here, though. But I think if you aren't healthy mentally and physically, if you don't have good relationships in your life, positive relationships, then your well-being is going to suffer. And regardless of what your purpose is, you're going to be less well-equipped to serve that purpose. I mean, it's almost like pulling an all-nighter. I'm, I'm sure you did that in school. We all did. My students do. It's almost universally a bad idea. You know, when we have a couple of events and a doctoral student's progression, one is their comprehensive exam, which is a two-day thing where it's, it can be brutal. And then their dissertation defense. And I always tell them, look, stop by 
maybe noon the day before and just don't look at anything. Do something fun, get some rest, try to get some sleep, and you'll be better off. And I think life is like that. If all you do is relentlessly, you know, do the grind, the whole grind culture and mentality is just wrongheaded to me. You know, if that's all you do, you're actually hurting your pursuit of your purpose. And I, if my wife listens to this, she's, she'll be rolling her eyes at this point because I work, I work all summer long, even though I don't get paid. You know, I, I'm a worker. I'm a, she calls me a border collie. But I also have time for silliness. You know, I go out and play with the dogs or I'll play with the cats or, you know, tell stupid jokes or whatever. Because if you're always that kind of nose to head down, nose to the grindstone kind of a thing, you actually are, are working against yourself in pursuit of your purpose. Right. So I think that I come back around to answer your question. I know I took a pretty yeah. good divergence there, but... You did. And I'm going to add an even bigger division now based on a modern book I read. I do read a lot of old dead Greeks, but I read an interesting book from Robert Lustig recently that kind of examined the dichotomy between pleasure and happiness and how we've confused those two in the past few hundred years in Western society and how it's causing us a lot of problems. When we say something like happiness in a can when describing Coke, well, no, it's just a bunch of things that elicit the dopamine response in your brain, in your brain, in that can. It probably is going to make you unhappy in the long run. And so the Stoics had a very interesting approach towards pleasure. One could even argue that they were a bit over the top in how much they tried to avoid it. So what would your recommendation be for us in this modern world where pleasure is just a button click away where you can buy anything you want? use anything you want. How do we handle that abundance? Well, you know, I think the Stoics would argue that there's nothing wrong with pleasure. In fact, they would call it, put it in the category of indifference. So it, it's something that it's great to enjoy while you have it. But at the end of the day, if you don't have it, that's okay too. And so, you know, if you had the opportunity to go out to a nice meal, great, go out to a nice meal. But if all of a sudden you lose that opportunity, then you really shouldn't be upset by it. And so that's why it's an indifferent. They had the preferreds, I think, dispreferreds, and then indifference. And a lot of what we would call pleasure would be in that indifferent category. Sorry to interrupt, but I think the counter argument would be that our brain chemistry is such that it gets attached to those preferred indifference. So we want them more and more and more, and we want them bigger and bigger and bigger. And then once they go away, we actually have a physical period of withdrawal where we cannot physically be happy because our brain is throwing bad chemicals into the bloodstream. I think that's a really good point. That's why you have to practice being indifferent to those. And so you deprive yourself. I mean, they, they would, I'm trying to remember which one, but they would, you know, uh, not wear warm clothing periodically because they wanted to be okay with being cold. You know, they might live outside temporarily because they want to be okay with that. And so I think you're exactly right. We're fighting our physiology and our brain chemistry, but it can be done. You know, it's a practice. All of this is a practice. It's not a state of being. 
you know, it's a constant practice. And so the Stoics actually came out of the Epicureans, who were really not all about as pleasure as a lot of people think, from my understanding. But when you read the Stoics, you know, they quote Epicure. I can never remember the... That doesn't sound right. Yeah, Yeah, Epicurus, that's it. I knew that didn't sound right when I said it. But, you know, they quote him a lot. And it's because the Stoics would say the whole point of Stoicism is to live a joyful life, but to live it in the right way and, and to have true joy. And the path to having a joyful life is to not be a slave to things that are out of your control. And so, yeah, you know, if you really like a Coke, have a Coke every once in a while. But also drink water. I mean, Coke is bad for you on a lot of fronts, but so I'm not encouraging anybody to, yeah, yeah. The half bad version. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So, uh, but you know, there's nothing wrong with having one of those. But if you feel like you have to have one, then, you know, maybe you need to take some steps, practice living without it. And so it is harder for us in some ways because it is, especially if you're lucky enough to have money and that sort of thing, you know, it is always available to you. I'll give you an example. My, my wife and I used to go out a lot, you know, and she got pretty sick. She had cancer and had to go through cancer treatments. And so, you know, we had a little bit of an adjustment period where we couldn't go out as much. Well, what we found out was We didn't really need to go out that much. You know, it was pleasurable. It was kind of fun to do. But, you know, after a while, we were fine staying home with each other. And so we thought we kind of needed to go out. I mean, I would actually get a little panicky if we couldn't go out. I was like, well, wait a second. You know, I want to be able to go out. Well, it turned out that I was letting that control part of my life and I needed to take back that control. And we, we happened to, you know, do that through an unfortunate circumstance, but it's okay to enjoy things, but you just can't be a slave to them would be what I think the Stoics and a lot of other philosophers would say. All right. So for my last question, since you mentioned that your purpose is to help people find more meaning and lead a more meaningful life, what is your one message, the one thing that you want people to remember that might help them achieve that? An unexamined life is not worth living. So spend some time. Was that Socrates? I think that was Socrates, yeah. Plato, one of those guys. Um, you, you can tell I'm really not a classically trained. I don't remember the, yeah. I can't well, cite the it, It's Plato supposedly quoting Socrates because right. we have no idea whether Socrates even existed or not, right? That, that's right. Yeah, it's very, it's very, conf- that's always confused me. So, But I think that's the message. You know, if you want to live a full life, if you want to live what I, I would call an excellent life, you have to examine your life. And that allows you to take control where you can. It also allows you to give up control where you can't control things. You let it go. But if you don't take that examination, then you're living a random life. And to me, that's no life to live. Right. And on that kind of realistic note, I would say, I want to thank you so much for being with us today. It was a great conversation. And I hope we can talk again in the future. Yep, Me too. I really enjoyed it. Thanks a lot. All right. Thanks, Craig. This has been another episode of The Other Web. 
Join us next time for more discussions on media, news, and the information ecosystem as a whole.